0: the Chautauqua Institution and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's June 19th and you're with a virtual City Club Forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. We're deeply grateful to them today and every week. Today is Juneteenth, an annual holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. It has been celebrated by African-Americans since the late 1800s. However, this year, following nationwide protests over police brutality and the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks and others, there's renewed interest in this day that celebrates freedom. Today, we'll talk with two journalists originally from Cleveland, now working at nationally regarded publications about their work and the meaning of their work in this moment. Before I introduce them, I wanna thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. You can see a full list of all of them at cityclub.org slash thank you. And you can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution or become a member at cityclub.org. Now to our speakers, Erica D. Smith is a columnist, a Metro columnist for the Los Angeles Times. She writes about the diversity of people and places across California. And she joined the Times in 2018 as an assistant editor and helped expand coverage of the state's housing and homelessness crisis. She previously worked at the Sacramento Bee where she was a columnist and editorial board member covering housing, homelessness, and social justice issues. And for the Indianapolis Star, as well as the Akron Beacon Journal, once upon a time. Jamil Smith is also with us. He's, senior writer. he's a senior writer at Rolling Stone where he covers national affairs and culture. Throughout his career as a journalist and Emmy award-winning television producer, he's explored the intersection of politics and identity. I wanna mention too that our forum today began with an idea from City Club member Chanel Smith-Wiggum. Big thanks to you Chanel, we appreciate it. I should note that all the Smiths I've just mentioned are not actually related. Um, So you can join our City Club Forum as every week. You can participate with your questions. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we will work them in in the second half of the program. Erica Smith, Jamil Smith, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland and we wish you were here back in Cleveland. wish
1: we were too. (laughs) Thank you. Indeed, We wish we were home.
0: Yeah, it is wonderful to have you both join us today. Happy Juneteenth to you. Jamil Smith, you. I want to start by asking both of you about Juneteenth and what it means to you as a journalist today. Jamil, you dropped a, a piece that just this morning for Rolling Stone about it. Tell us about
2: it. Indeed. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, entitled uh, Emancipation is Not Freedom. Uh, essentially, I view Emancipation Day, uh, Juneteenth, as really the most honest independence day that there is in this country. I think that, uh, you know, this day you Know June 19th, 1865, the day that the last enslaved people were informed that they, in fact, were liberated by the Emancipation Proclamation. As you know, the really the, the day that America was given the chance to really honor its promise of liberty for all and. Unfortunately, it didn't honor that promise, and of course, you know, abolition didn't come until the 13th Amendment was ratified, but, you know, really 12 years later, 1877, we saw Rutherford B. Hayes renege on the promise of Reconstruction, and we saw, you know, racial terrorism flood the, you know, the, the, I guess you could say the, the, uh, the prosperity that had been you know, flourishing, uh, the equality that had already been, uh, guess, you know, coming about, you know, throughout the uh, the South. I really just think that this country, you know, teases us with the possibility of equality for Black Americans, and right now we're seeing a, a possible tipping point. And I think what we need to do is follow through, possibly with a new Reconstruction, and that's what I argue for in this piece.
0: Jameel Smith, as I said, is with Rolling Stone, Erica Smith of the Los Angeles Times and a a Solon high school graduate as well. Important to note, Jameel Smith, a a graduate of both uh, of Shaker High School and Hawkins Middle School. Um, Erica, this Juneteenth feels different from every other Juneteenth that we have experienced as a nation.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's. It's very interesting. I mean, growing up, I didn't really celebrate Juneteenth like a lot of folks did, probably function somewhat of growing up in Solon. But um, as I've gotten older, it's become more and more important. And I would argue this year, it's by far the most important. And, you know, I've done a lot of reflecting as I've, like a lot of black journalists have covered a lot of these protests over the years, whether it's Michael Brown, in my case, it was Stephon Clark in Sacramento. Now, obviously, George Floyd. It just feels like up until now we've been piggyback on what Jamil said kind of like free-ish not really free and I feel like this is maybe a tipping point um to his piece kind of getting to what what was promised so many decades ago and it's it's liberating living through this time but it's also tiring I think and so when I reflect on Juneteenth that's what I think about is that kind of that dual duality of emotion.
0: Jameel Smith, Erica just mentioned your um, your cover story in the most recent issue of Rolling Stone. The title of the cover story is The Power of Black Lives Matter. Um, it, I, I'd want to ask you to talk about the piece, to talk about the origins of the piece. There's a lot of, it's almost like too obvious, like why would you write about this right now? I mean, it's sort of almost a silly question to ask, but I want to I ask you to talk about like how you approached the, there's so much has been written about Black Lives Matter and yet, so much is we forget sometimes the origins and and uh, that you that you go back to and spend some time reflecting on. So t- tell us about this piece that you just finished. Yes, and I think
2: you know to a large degree I think it's just, just uh, specific to Rolling Stone readers. I mean, a lot of folks are uh, you know coming into awareness of this movement for the first time, and I wanted to ensure that folks understood essentially the origins of it. Uh, We wanted to understand, uh, you know, that this movement comes from three Black women, uh, two of whom are queer women, and we want to understand why, you know, this movement came about, uh, why this movement, uh, you know, began with such essentially really a basic demand, and why that demand is now elevated from, you know, something that in 2013, people, you know, didn't really want to Repeat, at least, uh, you know, uh, certainly corporations wanted to shy away from, to something that now uh, people are slapping onto, you know, every Instagram and Facebook post, and people are continuing to embrace, you uh, know, from a multicultural standpoint. And now it is essentially what, it, what we say in the piece is that it has lifted the floor for what is possible. And it is now, you know essentially made possible demands such as defunding the police and has made us made possible for us to reimagine what our society should be looking for in terms of its uh, demands for law enforcement, uh, in terms of its demands for public safety no, in general. It's funny
0: to know, when you, um, you just said when, uh, that we have this opportunity to reimagine what our society does, how our society works, um, what it stands mm-hmm. for. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there was this sort of great pause on economic activity, and there were a lot of people asking that question too, uh, but, but in a different way, not, with, not specifically about, um, about Black Lives Matter, but more about just generally economic justice and, and whether or not we could, we could use the pause to, and the restart to create an economy and a society that works better for more people or works better for all. Um, the layering on of the Black Lives Matter movement and this moment has um, really shifted that, and it it does feel like there are possibilities today that were not available to America. They've always been available, but sort of weren't. There wasn't enough momentum behind them. Enough uh, enough something. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yes, I think that you know certainly that these times have made what you might call the holes in the boat in our America, uh, more conspicuous. I think that certainly you know, the Trump presidency has also made those things more conspicuous. These faults uh, in the American project have always been there. Uh, and certainly I think the more disenfranchised people, the more marginalized peoples within this country have always been loud and, and pointed about, you know making sure that people understand what they are. We've always been, protesting we've always been saying hey help us we, uh, we always said hey we've had issues in our in our communities we need we need help we need uh, help from our government we need uh, assistance we need people to pay attention but you know unfortunately you know folks you know enjoy privilege people enjoy uh, living in bubbles and people have been able to secure themselves in those bubbles and the coronavirus pandemic, it has broken a lot of those bubbles down. And while it wasn't the sort of universal experience that I think a lot of people made it out to be, I think, it, you know, certainly while it touched everybody on the planet, it didn't touch everybody equally. It certainly revealed faults within our society at a, at a greater level than I think perhaps ever before. And it made those things more conspicuous. And I think you know, when the economy collapses within a week, when it, you know, our, our, our faults in our healthcare system and our, and our food supply and in various different uh, areas of our society becomes so evident that uh, we need to make, take emergency action so quickly. I think people take notice. And I think when it comes to the idea that white supremacy uh, creates those kinds of deficiencies, um, then I think people need to, you know, they think people say, hey, maybe I need to become active in fighting this thing. Maybe I need to find ways to, you know, learn a little bit more about how I can take an active role within my own life. You, even if it's raising anti-racist children, so then make sure that the next generation doesn't come up this way. That is important. And I think the people, I think, to, to their credit are, you know, taking an active role in that.
0: Jameel Smith is a senior writer with Rolling Stone. Erica Smith is also with us from the LA Times. Erica, the um, in this moment, there are two deaths in Southern California that, um, would ordinarily raise a lot of questions. And those questions are especially poignant because of the context of this moment, Black Lives Matter, the hanging deaths of two Black men, one of them homeless. Um, Not a lot of people, uh, there hasn't been a lot of national coverage. You've covered this well, and your colleagues have covered it very well at the LA Times. But can you talk a little bit about those two hangings and and their meaning right now?
1: Sure. But one really quickly, I do want to add one thing to Jamil just said, I do think that the coronavirus did have the function of everybody being at home and actually being able to pay attention to what was going on. I think the fact that we were all sitting at home singing well, most of us were sitting at home in front of our TVs, the people that actually needed to see it, the people that weren't out working because they had to mostly the black and brown folks in this country they were able to actually see what was happening in real time and I do think that had an effect on the scale of the protests that we've seen but to answer your, your other question about the two hangings that we've had in Southern California one in Palmdale and one in the city of Victorville which are basically about an hour east of, of Los Angeles um, there have been a spate of reports of hangings um, all over the country about half dozen now I'm getting my numbers correct. But these two particular ones happened in an area where um, African-Americans have been moving into these neighborhoods from LA, mostly because they've been priced out because of housing prices, which has caused racial tensions to spike. And this has been going on for years. This is not a new thing, but there's a lot of tension between police and um, the African-American community in these um, high desert cities. And so two men have been found hung probably within about, within 10 days or so of each other. And in both instances, um, the uh, sheriff's departments, there's two of them, San Bernardino and LA County, decided to basically preempt them, preemptively rule them as a suicide. Obviously that got out. The families were very upset about this idea that they were just going to uh, take the, the hangings of these two black men and just, Kind of sweep it under the rug, and so there have been protests um, and you know demands, and there are now the FBI is involved as well as, well as our um, state attorney general's office is also investigating. But obviously, I mean, given what's going on with with the protests and the um, the tensions over race in this country, I mean, residents were understandably upset that this was just going to be not looked at as a potential a homicide. So um, it's an ongoing investigation. The autopsy reports are still pending, um, but you know.
0: Erica, you uh, visited both communities this week. Um, what did residents tell you?
1: Basically, that they were very skeptical of the uh, both sheriff's departments and their initial ruling. And but at the same time, they saw it as a continuation of practices that have been a part of these communities for at least a decade. I mean, both both Palm De- Palmdale in particular, has had a long history. Of uh, racial profiling for police, federal investigations. There have been um, the HUD has had to investigate over basically um, sheriff's deputies raiding Section Eight housing units uh, with military-style raids. There have been a series of issues over the years that have have been investigated and you know paid settlements have been paid, but there's still a lot of tension, and so they're very upset about this, and understandably so. And I, you could argue that in California these particular areas are probably some of the most tense as far as um, racial dynamics um, in part because it's moving people out of urban coastal areas and inland and where people where the population has historically been far more conservative and far more white
0: i want to shift gears a little bit and ask you both to talk about the black lives matter movement it, with a little bit more with respect to the lgbtq community um and the jamil as you've written about the the, the Two of the three founders identify as lesbian, and um, and this moment, particularly this week, with uh, the Supreme Court decision, Erica has kind of shifted the the um, the shifted the dynamics in our country and in our nation with respect to at least with respect to officially discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community. Um, how does it, Erica? how does it feel for you as a journalist reporting on this and and writing about this and being open about the, your own identity as a member of the LGBTQ community?
1: I mean, it's interesting to, I mean, it's always been a little bit of a weird thing being part of both. I mean, being both queer and, and being black and also being a woman, you kind of be, you're able to have a foot in lots of different roles. And I think mainly because of the way Rights have come for the LGBT community in such a, in some ways, a rush, I guess, as civil rights go in this country over the last 10, 15 or so years, there's been inevitable um, comparisons with civil rights among African Americans. And I think that now, given as Jamil has written, you know, two of the three members of, uh, founders of Black Lives Matter are queer women, I think that those two movements are very much colliding. And what was most interesting, at least in Los Angeles, is seeing how there's been this embrace of intersectionality of identities, and how I mean, it's, it's of course not across the board, but there seems to be more of a willingness to kind of understand that you can't just take one group and 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 deal with the oppression of this group, but not deal with the rest of people. Like one person's oppression is everybody's oppression, um, and that you know that has been a message that's been. Part of our history. I mean, people often forget that Gay Pride was started by a number of you know transgender women of color in New York City as a riot. It did not start as a big parade with a lot of glitter. It started people being very upset with police officers continually arresting and harassing this particular community. And so, in that, in the in the um, the vein of continuing civil rights in this country, that's what we're seeing on the streets today. I think.
0: But that's very different. I mean, as you pointed out in your recent column, that. I mean, the black community has not always embraced members of the LGBTQ community and the LGBTQ community has not always embraced black members of its own community.
1: No, there's racism definitely within the LGBT community and, and vice versa. And so it's, you know, I'm hoping that maybe we'll start to break down some barriers. The pra- the parade that happened, it was really more of a rally slash parade sort of thing that happened was intended to kind of bridge those those gaps. And there's a long way to go. I mean, in every city, major city in this country, there's deep wounds that have, you know, that people feel that the majority white members of the LGBT community have inflicted upon the, the people of color within that community. And it's going to take a while to, to kind of work through that stuff. Um, but I do see, again, I do see a willingness to kind of share the burden of oppression. And that's that's nice to see.
0: Jamil Smith. Um, writing as you do for Rolling Stone, which has sort of been the voice of, of, you know, it was, I mean, you think about it as like the voice of counterculture um, mm-hmm. long ago, and then it sort of, it becomes sort of a mainstream, it is both mainstream and counterculture, I guess, at this point. Um, but in the world in which you write the me, as, as a member of the media, the media is not an incredibly diverse place. So mm-hmm. Talk about what it's like for you right now to be, Um, to be a writer of color, writing for
2: the Rolling Stone? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important role. I feel that I'm a person who is charged with ensuring that a magazine this important represents a particular moment in a particular way. And that is, I think, a particularly heavy burden. Um, and it's not necessarily one that I should bear alone and that's why I'm encouraging my my editors and they are willing and they're you know to you know make sure that they're reaching out for diverse voices whether it's in freelance or looking for new staff positions and I'm thankful that I work for a not just a staff in editors but also a corporation that's always looking for more diverse voices and supporting you know, Juneteenth holiday. I happen to be in an empty office right now that's empty because it, everyone has off for the Juneteenth holiday. Um, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, I'm thankful that, uh, you know, during this, um, you know, this coronavirus pandemic, you know, I've seen the kind of support uh, for, you know, my, my black colleagues, uh, you know, in that I've, that I've really, you know, Frankly, haven't seen in a lot of other stops, you know, up the corporate ladder in my media career. And, you know, frankly, Rolling Stone, despite, you know, even they'll admit, you know, they could do better with regards to, you know, diversity figure. I think that, you know, they are trying to do better. And I just think that, you know, there's a lot of folks, you know, a lot of places in in media that just they don't really care as much. And I think caring is is the is the first step. You know, they want to do better. They don't want to necessarily have black voices just writing about quote unquote black subjects. They want diverse voices writing about diverse topics. They want black voices in different departments and different doing different things. And you know, we have a black creative director. We have you know black um, you know social media director. We have you know black people in sales and doing different things throughout the magazine. I'm really, really encouraged by the diversity I have seen throughout the magazine, and I'm encouraged by the growth still to come.
0: Jameel Smith is a senior writer at Rolling Stone. Erica Smith of the LA Times is with us. Both Erica and Jamil Smith are from Greater Cleveland and um, now writing for these nationally regarded publications. And we're talking about the work of, uh, of, of journalism for these two Black writers in the midst of this Black Lives Matter. Um, moment, and uh, which doesn't really do it justice at all. And like, sometimes, you know, you're searching for the right words. And it's a lot easier if you've got an editor uh, behind you to help. <laughs> but um, if you'd like to join our conversation, you can uh, text your question to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 that's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. You can tweet your question at the City Club. We'll work it in. I want to talk to you both about um, the protester demands uh, that we've been we've actually been discussing a lot here at the City Club Forum and the Friday Forum and, and other forums throughout the last few weeks. Um, demands to to defund the police or abolish the police. Demands to um, to really see. And make sh- and ensure that our, our cities and our communities become places that are simply more just um and the responses to these these demands are really different in so many places and i'd like to ask you both to kind of contextualize to help our community here in cleveland understand how the nation is responding because sometimes you know in, in these individual communities i mean here we are you know, a few hours from Bethel, Ohio, right, where, uh, where protesters were met by armed counter protesters and assault charges have been issued. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, where city leadership here in Cleveland, when asked about defunding the police, replied, that's absurd, that would never happen. Erica Smith, how, what's the conversation like in LA with Mayor Eric Garcetti, who I should mention actually spoke at the City Club a couple of years ago.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, it's it's been interesting. I, I do think the pressure that he's gotten from Black Lives Matter activists in particular has has started to, to have really an effect. I mean, he did come out. Um, the other interesting thing about all these protests happening now is it happened at a time when basically city and state governments were in the middle of their budget cycles and counties. And so it presented definitely an opportunity in real time to really talk about how we're gonna, you know, reframe our our finances to actually meet the needs of the people. And, you know, to Garcetti's credit, he did actually, you know, come out and say that, yes, we're gonna look at defunding the police to an extent. Now, granted, he's also coming at this, um, you know, LAPD has gotten better since 92, but it's not the most, the best department. I mean, it was only a couple of months ago that there was an LAPD officer on camera beating up some Person in handcuffs in Boyle Heights. So, this is not like, you know, these excessive uh, force claims don't still happen. Um, and so, the groundswell has definitely been uh, the case to do that. I would say in other cities in California, the conversation has been happening. This, my, my former home of Sacramento is definitely proceeding along that path. There have been similar conversations in Oakland and San Francisco. Um, the one thing about California that people tend to forget when they understand, they think of us as a very liberal state is that the police unions here have way more power here than almost any state in the country. And until very recently, um, many things that you could get as journalists just getting basically background information uh, on officers, um, their uh, disciplinary records, those things were off limits until basically about a year, year and a half ago, when the legislature finally were, were able to kind of um, tell the police unions and the money, no can actually pass these bills. So it'll be really interesting to see, I think, what's gonna happen um, over the next year. Definitely the police unions are not getting as far as they used to um, with either state lawmakers or in, in cities. And so there seems to be a changing of, of the guard. And so we'll, we'll have to see how that happens, but I'm heartened to see that the conversations are actually happening.
0: Jameel, from a national perspective, where are you seeing these efforts to shift responsibilities? I mean, we the, the phrase "defund the police, abolish the police" those are um, they they trigger some people. They 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 and and really in the end, I mean, we're talking about sort of reallocating funds to provide better services to the communities right. which police and others are asked to serve. Um, are you where are you seeing success? I mean, we know Minneapolis has sort of declared that they're going to completely. You know tear apart and rebuild public safety in their um, in their
2: city but what do yeah. you what are you seeing what are you looking at I'm looking at Minneapolis uh, you know certainly you saw the mayor Jacob Fry you know booed essentially out of a protest um, when he refused uh, to defund the police but then you know shortly thereafter the city council essentially overruled him and uh, said that they were going to uh, look at uh, disbanding the police uh, you see uh, cities uh, looking to you know, other cities like Camden, New Jersey, which essentially in the past has disbanded its entire police department and rebuilt it from the ground up. Uh, They're looking to cities like Camden as models. And I think you're gonna see a lot more cities uh, thinking about, you know, essentially, you know, embracing that kind of model. Um, You're looking at cities like, you know, like LA, as Erica mentioned, um, thinking about using social workers uh, on calls. Uh, to respond to certain, to certain particular, you know, calls and non-emergencies in in particular. Um, I, from what I've been tracking, i will be looking, you know, more broadly, uh, of course, but uh, I think one of the things, when I speak to activists, one of the things they're trying to drive at is just to get cities to think uh, just differently, Um, just to just, frankly, embrace different models. Abolishment uh, is not necessarily something that's off the table. But one of the things, um, you know, that uh, is key, I think, to reform efforts is uh, qualified immunity is a term that we hear a lot. And it's something that is key to the Democratic uh, House reform, uh, something that Republicans have ruled uh, completely off the table. But qualified immunity is key uh, to, you know, to, to, to explain what I mean, because it's a, a, a term that you know sounds a little complicated, but you're talking about something that, you know, is, you know, cops essentially, you know, get off because of, you know, different, different set of terms, uh, you know, qualified immunity um, allows them to be held to a different standard and, you know, if, if you are held to a different standard for a particular violent act, um, then you know, if it, if that allows them to, um, you know, act with a little bit more impunity uh, than, than certainly, you know, the rest of us. And what we're seeing now is certainly in the Richard Brooks case, uh, we're seeing DAs be a little bit more aggressive, certainly than, you know, the Timothy McGinty's of the past in Cleveland, but, you know, we're still seeing, of course, in Louisville, DA is being a little bit more cautious in the Breonna Taylor case. So, what we need to see, honestly, I think it's a nation- nationwide effort to look at qualified immunity as a, as a reform. And then, you know, certainly overall look at the overall role of police and communities.
0: It's interesting that, you know, when you talk about qualified immunity, I, I think about like the presumption of innocence that our courts uh, and our, our justice system allegedly has. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and So then, with respect to police officers and, and qualified immunity, it's like a, a super presumption of innocence. Like, no, 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 no. We really mean it this time,
2: right? I mean, it's qualified immunity essentially gives police the old, you know, not just the benefit of the doubt, but the, you know, it's 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 telling them that, that essentially we believe you before we <laughs> we believe you. We believe that you're innocent. We're basically giving you not just the benefit of the doubt, but saying that like, look, you you're innocent. And the person who is accusing you—I don't know—it's just—it's it, it, almost—it's just giving so much weight to the police in a court in any kind of you know adjudication that uh, I think anybody who's 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 trying to bring a case against the police uh, just really has you know very very little hope, and I think if you have any kind of sense of any kind of justice uh, or any kind of hope for justice, we really just cannot operate like this in a society, you know, considering the kind of record of abuse that we're seeing. Um, I mean, I know records of abuse and violence are down, but the disproportionate effect, um, we're still seeing four times the number of of, of killings are, are still affecting African Americans as opposed to white people.
0: As you um, as you say that, I'm reminded, uh, Erica Smith, of a um, definition of white supremacy that a friend shared with me several years ago, kind of prior to the phrase being in part of our mainstream dialogue and national dialogue. Um, You know that white supremacy isn't just about white supremacist organizations, but she said it's a system. It it is the ways in which all of our systems bend toward the credibility of whiteness. Qualified immunity would seem to me to be a really textbook example of that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, to, as Jamil said, I mean it's just giving basically the benefit of the doubt and then some to a system that it's working well. And and I think that to me is the ultimate, you know, you know, kicker, right? I mean, we're basically saying even though we have you know decades and decades and decades of data showing that the criminal justice system does not work equally we basically have policies that are built on this very idea that they work equally. And therefore, we're going to give people who are a part of the system, who are working for the system, the benefit of the doubt. And so, I mean, at some point, there has to be some sort of reckoning of the two. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And I think that, I think it's been, I think it took, you know, like many things, maybe just took this particular case for the rest of the country. Maybe it took COVID and being everybody being in the house to kind of see that and to wake up. But I think there's definitely a lot of pressure. And it was actually very disappointing on the same day that the Supreme court ruled in favor of upholding, you know, workplace discrimination laws for the LGBTQ community. The same day is that they also declined to hear several cases involving that would potentially challenge qualified immunity. And so, um, you know, this is this handing out of civil rights and how handled, civil rights is handled in this country is still very very uneven. And I think it's you know incumbent upon all of us to to remember that. And it is great to see DA's actually finally starting to charge some of these officers. And there's definitely been been a hesitancy to do so. It'll be interesting to see come November if a number of DA's who are up for reelection, including here in Los Angeles, if the progressive candidate wins or if it ends up being you know. Some, some of the tough on crime folks that have been in power for so long. So,
0: Erica Smith is a Metro columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Jamil Smith, senior writer for Rolling Stone. They are our Friday Forum speakers here at the City Club of Cleveland here on Juneteenth. And uh, we're gonna turn now to questions from our audience. You can join with your question when you text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you tweet it at the City Club. And we'll work it into the program. Uh, this question um, from actually a former board member of the City Club: How do you respond to your white colleagues and friends when they ask what they can do to address racism in America? This is a black woman, by the way.
1: Okay, <laughs> Jamil, do you want to take that one first? Or sure. <laughs> <try>? <laughs>
2: well, thank uh, you. Both, but there's a yeah, this question, um, right? How I respond? I essentially how I how I respond is i ask them first what are they already doing um what are you already doing and so if you know when if i hear that they're already volunteering or they're doing nothing you know where they just at a loss then you know i when i told an old colleague the other night i said i asked him first how many kids do you have and then he told me he said 13 10 and eight year old and, and i said First, raise your kids to be anti-racist. That's the first and best thing that you can do. Second of all, uh, you know, do your best to be intellectually curious and be a critical thinker. And so I I said, you know, because he and I were were tight, I, I didn't mind him asking me, but I told him, I said, black people are tired right now. Black folks are, you know, not wanting to be looked at as sort of, Libraries of information. Uh, they don't want to be the person that stopped on the street being, like, please help me, please guide me towards the light. Uh, <laughs> you know, folks just want to be living their lives, and dude, folks are traumatized right now. Folks can go to Google. Folks, there's, there's, there's a lot of resources out here that you can access. There's a lot of folks, there's a lot of uh, Lists, there's a lot of listicles and, and, and bestseller lists that you can access right now. Um, Schomburg Center, there's there's all kinds of websites and resources for you that you can access. Trust me, there's we live in the information age. I, I, I implore you, please be curious, please ask. Um, you know, there's even white or you know, white led organizations that have been doing good work. Um, I, you know. I, I think that I, I really do trust people to find information for themselves and and, and and not, I think, lean so heavily upon their black colleagues and friends who are going through a rough time right now uh, to provide all of the guidance that they may be seeking.
0: Yeah. Erica um, Smith, you, you wrote a piece, a column about this recently yeah. about Cash App
1: yeah, well, yeah. So you know, this started. You know, Jameel knows this, but you know, when you're a journalist, you get a lot of weird emails from people and just messages on multiple different platforms. And so I was getting these messages, you know, not long after you know George Floyd, the video surfaced, and people just asking me how I'm doing and you know what can they do to help. And it was very strange because it was not people that I knew very well. It was people that had talked to probably in 20 years. And you know, I started asking around and to some of my my friends who're black, and they were like, yeah, that happened to me too. And it was shocking that it was like a thing. So I wrote about it, um, but you know, to to Jamil's point I think that black people are kind of done being people's Sherpas. Like we don't really want to Google stuff for you. We, you know, it's just, you know, we can, you can do it just like we can. Um, but I, I think, you know, that column, it was interesting cause it prompted a, a number of responses including from close friends who feared that they were the ones that were, you know burdening themselves and I had to tell them no. But I, you know, for people, I even told them, it's like, you know, I think the thing that, that white people can do the most, and I would tell anybody this is, you know, do the things that African-Americans can't. I mean, white people have a lot more, you know, ability to navigate the networks of power than we do in often cases. There's a lot of things that happen that um, are outside of the eye of, of African-Americans where we don't have spheres of influence. And if you can, you know, get, get, your lobbyist friends to lean on these lawmakers to be more willing to pass laws that affect African Americans and, and help us towards justice then do that. Or if you can lean on those lawmakers, or you know, get your wealthy suburban friends to write letters and push, you know, lawmakers to do something else. I mean, I think I think it's like do the things that African Americans aren't in a position to do. I think that's where you start to look. I mean, beyond the general like googling the books to read and, and stuff. I don't. I mean. I think the days of just writing a check and thinking that or are sending somebody money via cash app is kind of over. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's, I guess that's helpful for some people, but it's not, that's not enough to say that you've helped towards justice. You have to do more than that. And that's kind of, I think, where a lot of people are right now.
0: Well, It's worth pointing out that one of the top books, the top two or three books selling in America right now is literally titled How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, um, which uh Pretty much spells it out right there. Um, you mentioned sort of critical thinking, Jamil, and it occurs to me, and, and one of the things that I've noticed um, over these these last few weeks, and, and actually last few years, to be perfectly frank, but like that a piece of this is not just being a critical thinker, but being really self-critical, that it's imperative for white people to, to, to really critique themselves and be open to the critique that they receive from others about ways in which they may be operating within and supporting inadvertently, perhaps, a racist structure.
2: Yeah. And I want to go back a little bit in this in this question to we were talking about black journalists and black media. And I think, you know, people really need to critique their media diet in this re, in this regard. I think people, you know, we, we consume on a daily basis, uh, you know, sometimes uncritically a lot of media that is harmful to us. And and we consume just uncritically a lot of sources that we are just simply used to uh, because we simply, quote unquote, trust them. And why do we trust them? Well, we we trust them because, well, they look like us or they sound like us. or they sound like people, you know, that we are related to, we know that we have to rethink a lot. As Americans, uh, specifically talking to white Americans here, rethink why you trust the sources that you trust, and you know we seek out new sources of news, seek out new sources of opinion, uh, seek out you know black journalists who are writing it. You're not always going to tell, be able to tell by the byline who is black and who is white. You have to do some investigation. You you know you're not necessarily going to know. That Wesley Lowry is is black or white, but you know he is black and he's actually from Shaker Heights. Um, you the city club as well. <laughs> exactly, uh, you're gonna have you you have to investigate. Uh, you know to find out. You know whether or not you you know, Eston Herndon or uh, an Aaron Haynes um, mm-hmm. or, or all these different writers. Um, you know Serena McFadden. All these different writers and. Um, and, and and television folks, uh, you know, are, are out there. You just have to go find them. It, it, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes intellectual curiosity. And this is something that you have to invest your time and your effort in. And it's going to make your 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 media experience richer. It's going to make your knowledge richer. And and frankly, if this is something that you want to get to know more about. Uh, then, you know, frankly, this is what you
0: have to do. There's another question from a listener who's wondering what comes to mind when, uh, about your upbringing. Was there anything about your upbringing in Northeast Ohio, both of you, that has impacted your understanding of race and racism? Erica, can you start?
1: Well, (laughs) I mean, growing up in Solon, I grew up in Solon in the... uh, Late '80s, early '90s. I graduated in '95, and so you know, the thing I always tell people about Solon is, at the time when I went there, it was probably the racial population of the U.S. at that time. And so, the one thing is, it very much prepared me for. Um, as much as I went kicking and screaming to Solon from Warrensville, um, from my parents, um, I I was an eternally grateful later graduating one because there was a newspaper there that I could that I could work, so I understood how to how to Right, uh, journalistically, but also just understanding how to work with people of different races. I think that that's something that I in the workplace and I can trace back to that time. And I remember specifically a time in Solon when there was um, some real angst about um, the number of African-American students there that people were feeling that they weren't being represented and teachers were talking down to them. And there was this little mini revolt in Solon, which was really strange, but I got to write about it actually in that paper, which I I found later, like in my twenties that I wrote, which would arguably probably be my first column, but it was writing kind of really about racial justice then within the Solon school district. And so I, in some ways, I think that that very much that whole experience and being a minority in that district um, and, and having to find a way to stand up for myself and to make sure that there was justice and to make sure that I wasn't being a victim of racism and to trying to tear down these systems, which I tried to do as much as a high school student can do. But I think that that very much prepared me for what has been my adult life. So, um, yeah, that would be my thought.
2: Jamil? Yeah, Um, certainly growing up in Shaker Heights uh, was uh, a formative experience. I, you know, I also, you know, grew up partially in Cleveland, and so, you know, with, with parents in, in, in both cities, and I, you know, I, I, th- I certainly think I would not be where I am today without having you know spent my elementary and middle school years at Hawken, and, uh, and certainly, my, um, you know, the encouragement the encouragement that I got there from teachers like like Deborah Handy in my eighth grade class and uh, who was first teacher who you know encouraged me along the lines of my writing. Um, you know, was 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 invaluable, and so you know, moving on to Shakerites High School, um, you know, and Sally Schwartz, you know, trained me in, in terms of my journalistic writing. Was I certainly think that you know, my years at Shaker and working with my classmates there, was was incredible. Um, I think that mm-hmm. it, it's important that students start early. You know, if they have you know. You know, any kind of passions they have, you know, it's important that they be able to start early um, to train, you know, some kind of specificity like that, uh, to have some kind of um, outlet like a school paper or what have you to be able to train and actually report on stories that are serious. I mean, my my first story that I reported on was about uh, a banner over uh, Lee Road. I said, Apartheid Shaker um, protesting the. Uh, the barriers between Shaker and Cleveland, the traffic barriers. I mean, you when to talk about a, a story fraught with race and in and, and class and all these different things, talk about things that sparked my interest in what I'm doing right now. Um, it was right there for me and, and where I grew up. And so I, I think that, you know, all these kinds of things, it, it, they're right there if you're paying attention. And I just think that if, you know i think that if a if student can be curious and a and student can be encouraged along the right lines um, it's all right here for you in cleveland and it was an, an amazing place to grow up and i wouldn't have traded it for the world
0: it's interesting that the question about about like how your upbringing uh, exposed you to race and racism turned into an advertisement for scholastic journalism, um, which is great. Like that's, that's wonderful as a, as a former high school newspaper editor myself. Um, I think that's, that's fantastic. Those bar- barriers that you spoke of Jamil have been raised as an issue again, this last uh, these last couple of weeks and right. so, and they still stand. And yeah. uh, it's still a question for leadership in Shaker Heights about what they're going to do with those. Um, Jamil, it, this is a question about anti Semitism within the Black Lives Matter movement, which um, there have been these charges of anti Semitism at various points over the last few years as uh, different parts of the Black Lives Matter movement have been accused of such. Um, what do you, your piece did not touch on that at all, um, mm-hmm. but what have you, and that, in some ways that feels as if a, it's a, a piece of the, some of the growing pains of the Black Lives Matter movement, but how do you see those charges today? Well, I see them
2: as, uh, you know, is things that the, ind- the individuals who, you know, said the, those particular words and, and, and dealt with those particular issues need to answer for. And I think that, you know, it's unfortunate certainly, and I certainly would renounce any associations with any of those, remarks. I think that, you know, folks that uh, engage in those kinds of uh, beliefs and, and, and those kinds of, uh, you know, um, you know I think that that's a, all that kind of stuff is, is a distraction from the ultimate goal of, uh, of, of full liberty for our people. And I think that, you know, I, I don't really understand exactly why uh, you know people would engage in that kind of uh, you know, rhetoric? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I never really mm-hmm. have.
0: Um, I want to ask you both about the. There's a few questions about the crisis in journalism today, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, sort of focused on local daily newspapers, um, in many ways. But. Um, but there's kind of two crises, right? There's a crisis of credibility with the with the um, the label fake news, and then there's also a real crisis in terms of the business models. Um, Erica Smith, what do you um, how do you see it, and what do you see as your role in um, in kind of contributing to the future of journalism?
1: Well, take the second part of your question first to the credibility part. I think you know at the Los Angeles Times we've been having. Like many papers, um, conversations about our staffing levels of uh, people of color, particularly African Americans, um, our audience, which is, a, is an ongoing question um, in this in this age, and you know, L. A. like the state of California is a majority minority state, and so our audience, everybody tends to agree, is going to have to grow, and it's not going to grow by getting more readers, white middle class or middle age readers. It's going to come from younger. And more diverse groups of people. And so our coverage has to change, um, which goes to credibility. Um, and so part of credibility is hiring people of color to continue to write and give story ideas and to make the newsroom more inclusive. And I think that that is going to enhance credibility, which if credibility is enhanced, that starts to combat some of the, the labels of fake news and things that are kind of circulating right now. Um, I think that, you know, Trump in his rhetoric has done a tremendous amount of damage not only to news organizations as institutions but as to institutions in general and people's trust in them not to say that that trust was like rock solid before but by any means it was not but he took those cracks and made them into basically canyons and so there's a lot of work that our industry has to do to kind of rebuild that credibility and a lot of this stuff we can't even blame trump for this is stuff we did to ourselves um through through years of cutting through years of how we cut through years of not listening to journalists of color in the newsroom about how you cover these communities to just flat out just racist type of coverage. I mean, the LA Times has gone through a reckoning about our 1992 coverage of Rodney King and how that happened and how that has translated into how we cover, have covered the George Floyd protests. So. This kind of stuff is like these conversations are happening in our newsrooms. I think they're ultimately healthy. I would like to think that of the papers that have the money and can survive, and I'd like to think the Times can grow by a billionaire, um, that we can continue to invest in our newsrooms and to make journalism more democratic and increase our credibility.
2: Jamil. Yes, I, I want to agree with what, what Erica said. I think the newsroom diversity is key to reestablishing the credibility of media in general, but particularly the press. I think that you know one of the big faults uh, and one of the reasons why uh, the press was particularly weakened uh, in in this moment of attack from the president and the right uh, is because they you know were able to sustain you know I guess the the level of credibility because they were, you know, they were too myopic with a lot of their coverage. You know, they, they did not have the abil- they did not have the scope, I guess you could say, to cover a lot of the stories that were important. And they, they missed a lot of things that were you know, significant that were happening in the world because, frankly, you know, they, they, they did not have um, not just simply uh, racial diversity, but also gender diversity. Uh, and geographic diversity. Let's be let's be frank about it. I mean, a lot of these newsrooms did not have. I mean, I, you go in these newsrooms, and you know, they don't, Some of these folks don't know that Ohio borders Pennsylvania. I mean, it, it's 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 kind of pathetic. And so it, it's you know, and I I spent a lot of time in New York City, and, and, and you know, I I just frankly, this notion of East Coast bias and and is. Fortunately, a reality. And I I really do hope that people awaken to this idea that, you know, I, I don't use the term fake news because I do think it's a tool of, you know, propaganda. But I, I think that, you know, if we don't get used to the idea that this, this, this kind of stuff is going to continue, even if Trump is, you know, not reelected, uh, the right sees this opportunity to promote um, a distrust in journalism um, as a tool to advance their political interests. So unless we get wise, our industry is going to suffer financially and otherwise. And we're going to see jobs lost in our industry because of their political advancement. They don't care whether or not people are, lose jobs. We've seen them openly celebrate people getting laid off in our business. So. You know, we have to get wise and understand that it's either us or them, more or less. Mm-hmm.
0: Final question for for both of you: um, What's next? What are you looking? What are the stories you're going to be tracking this summer, Erica?
1: Well, I think for me, I mean, I'm in relatively new columnist at the Times, and I'm really interested to see how the state of California stands. You know what do we do with this moment that's been brought about because of COVID and because of the protests. I mean, most people know California is, you know, ruled by Democrats and supermajority supermajority in, in the state house and through most, through so many of our city councils and, and counties. And so there's been a lot of rhetoric and a lot of talk and a lot of promises. Um, it's, I want to see how these promises come through, both in terms of law enforcement and police brutality, but also in the inequities, everyday inequities that affect so many people in this state. I mean, we are a state that has incredible wealth and incredible poverty, and um, you see it in our housing crisis, you see it in homelessness, you see it in health, in healthcare, you see it in in pretty much everything. And so there's a there's a tall order of things that have to be done, and I'm hoping to cover this state and then talk about that and talk to the people and see, you know, make sure that we are, our lawmakers are actually doing what they say they're going to do.
2: And briefly, Jamil? Yes, I'm hoping to see how we end up electing a president uh, amidst the coronavirus pandemic. I think that it's incredibly important to see how uh, things will change. And I want to see how uh, specifically black turnout is affected and how uh, our networks within our communities, uh, you know, end up helping to produce the vote.
0: Well, as predicted, uh, we did not touch on everything that we that we could have or hope to. Jamil Smith is with Rolling Stone, Erica Smith with the LA Times, both from Cleveland. So good to see you both. Thank you so much. And we do promise to actually fly you to Cleveland when it's safe to fly and bring people back together again.
1: Great. Look forward to it. Thank,
0: Thank you, you very much. Thank- Thank you both and happy Juneteenth. Our forum today is part of our authors and conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We appreciate their support of City Club programs. Also, we appreciate the sponsorship of our virtual forums from the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District and PNC. We're going to continue to present our virtual forums throughout this time, either uh, online or here from the Idea Stream studios. If you have ideas, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is now adjourned.